Our Father, as we uh, consider further the record that you have given us of history and its origins, and particularly the origin of evil and sin, we ask that your Holy Spirit open our hearts to these truths, and not just to the truths, but how they impact our lives today. In particular, how we are to properly approach you in a world of evil and a world of suffering. For we ask this through our Savior's name. Amen. Last time we started uh, the final end of chapter 4, which was the application of evil, the, uh, the, the application of the doctrine of evil. And again, to bring everyone up to speed, remember that whereas tonight we're going to get into the practical side of matters, the practical side of matters make no sense whatsoever if you do not believe in these basic truths. These are the foundation. <clears throat> Without this foundation, everything we say tonight about the practical side is nothing more than psychotherapy, nothing more than, than some psychological idea in your head. And that lacks integrity. Our consciences aren't made for just psychotherapy. They're made for truth, true truth. And so we want to remember that the Christian approach to this whole issue of evil uh, depends on that issue of the fall. That the universe left the hand of God perfectly good and that the origin of evil is the creature's responsibility, not the creator's. This is very hard and it's very sneaky because in an average suffering situation, this never crosses our mind and the proof that it doesn't cross our mind and the proof that we ignore it is when we get angry at God for the evil that's around us. The very fact that we get angry with God for the evil around us tells you that in your heart of hearts, this pagan notion still has a grip because we intuitively respond to the suffering as though, as though it was always there that somehow either it was always there along with good and we're just getting an unfair dose of it and that it was always there if God somehow created it or he started things off. He started off with evil in it. Somehow he's responsible for it. And the cutting edge of response to suffering, sorrow, and evil question is whether or not we are going to attribute its ultimate origin to the creator of the creature. And it's a basic fundamental. So that's why I keep reviewing this. That's why the Bible has these set historic events, the creation, and then we come to the fall. And the fall is not just a sweet little story about a lady and an apple. The fall is the origin of evil because of the create creature, not the creator. Well, tonight we want to go, we, we started this last time on coping strategies because every one of us has devised over the years we've lived some sort of approach that we use to handling suffering. So we start off then with suffering and we're going to respond to that suffering some way. And we outlined the pagan approach. 
and you can verify this for yourself. It's in, you know, it's in a lot of the world's literature. The pagan coping strategies. And on page 64, we had some quotes that are important quotes because that tells you, I'm not making this up. It's all out there. It's all written down. This is, this is, the, this is the party line of the world system. This is not something that Christians said. This is something that non-Christians say, and they're quite honest about saying it. And we came down last time on page 64 to Kaufman, who for many years taught philosophy at Princeton University. And he's a very articulate thinker. And this is why, by the way, when you study non-Christian th thought, try to pick the clearest non-Christians. Try to pick the systematic guys. And believe me, you'll waste time reading if you, if you just waste time fiddling around with secondary and tertiary authors. Pick the guys that really know what they're saying. Kaufman is one of them. He's dead now, but he wrote a book called Faith of the Heretic. Uh, excellent book because he just lays it all out for you. And, and they're quite open in front. The problem that you get into is you'll read some gooey mess that's in between. And then that's where you really get confused. Where you have some sort of a, a Christian, a pseudo-Christian response to the problem of evil. Like there's a, a rabbi that wrote a book, What Happens When... What is it? What Happens to Bad Things Happen to Good People or something. And his attempt to handle the problem goos up a sovereign God and, and makes him non-omnipotent and God's apologetic about what happens. And oh, it's a mess. If you really want to study unbelief, go to the heart of it and really take a whiff of it from the guys that really know what they're saying. And that's why I always like to go to Kaufman. I don't like to get my... I want to get unbelief. I study unbelievers. I don't need Christians to tell me what it is. So, Kaufman, um, write down on the bottom of page 64, at the critical point in his writing, here's what he says. We are free to give our own lives meaning and purpose, free to redeem our suffering by making something out of it. The plain fact is that not all suffering serves a purpose, and this is the classic statement. If there is to be any meaning to it, it is we who must give it. <clears throat> Going back to the, to the point that we made last time to review, it gets back to this diagram we've drawn again and again of the cre cre creator and the creature. And on the Christian basis, one of the attributes of the Creator is that he is omniscient. If God is omniscient, it means that he has a plan. That plan is rational. And if God is holy, that means that plan is just. But if the Creator isn't there, so if you do not have this and you just have the creature, now you really have a problem. Because the creature doesn't have omniscience. He has a finite mind. He has finite knowledge. And out of this limited knowledge, he has to make a universal. He has to make an absolute, some sort of fundamental statement about what is going on, where purpose. Purpose not only for today, but your yesterday, a thousand years ago, and a thousand years to come. And the problem that he has is how do you do that with a finite intellect? And that's why people like Kaufman know very well they can't do it. So what they do is they make a subjective. 
it's a surrender to the subjective. That is, I create the thing, it's what works for you is cool, you know. What works for me is this. So everybody's doing their whatever it works for them things. And that's subjectivity. And Kaufman acknowledges it here. Said another way, Kaufman in that first sentence, you notice he says, the plain fact is that not all suffering serves a purpose. Now how would he know that if he didn't absolutely have a universal? See, that's a powerful statement. How do you know it doesn't serve a purpose? A purpose in someone's life, intellect, uh, uh, you know, a thousand years from now? The point is that that's a very blanket statement, but it's a confession of the arrogance of paganism. In other words, I don't believe God's there, but I, in my finite intellect, have concluded there is no purpose and no meaning to the universe. Yet, in the very next sentence, which is a continuation of that, very next, actually, it's a continuation, and if there is to be meaning, it is we who must give it. Now think of what the man has said. Think through this carefully. This is the exact opposite of Scripture. The Scripture says that all suffering does serve a purpose, and it serves a purpose not because we know it. Because here, you remember, we had Job. Did Job know the purpose of his suffering? No. But did Job know there was a purpose to his suffering? Yes. And it goes back to the hymns. I do not know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. I mean, the hymn says it all. But what Kaufman would say is that I don't know the future, you don't know the future, and nobody knows the future. And so to get along for now, I'll think something up. Now, I said it very bluntly, but that's, that's the best that unbelief can do. You're looking at the best here. This is the best that the non-Christian can do. Now, that's sick. That's sad. And then on page 65, uh, I pointed out that Paul, in the Scriptures, Paul in the Scriptures, i got my pages out of outline here, uh, anticipated this. He anticipated, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we just want to review that passage so that's familiar to you, and that sometime in, you, you're tempted to think along these lines, or you have a friend who you're trying to help is tempted along these lines, or you meet a skeptic who says that we Christians are the obscurantists and we just kind of live in our own little separate world and uh, we don't think about reality and so forth. These pa this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is, is tremendous to anecdote for this because it is an admission in the heart of the Christian gospel that the Christian leaders of the church, the Apostle Paul in particular, knew very well the consequences if once you, you abandon the historical trustworthiness of the Bible. And in fact, what Paul is saying here is if Jesus did not rise from the dead, that is, if the fundamental doctrine of Christianity is wrong, and that is in, can't be held if you don't believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus. You can talk all you want to about the idea of the resurrection or what an inspiration the resurrection is. But if it didn't historically happen, there are certain consequences. And right in the apostolic age, it was clear to the Christians what would happen. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, and that means historically, literally, measurably, if you had a camera, 
that kind of historical, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. And verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We followed a delusion. And then finally, I cite that other verse, verse 32, because in verse 32, he is very quick to point out the behavioral implication of this. The behavioral implication is that if I fought with beasts and so on, and, and what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul was perfectly willing to take that conclusion, if it were true that Christianity was false. But what we always have here is we have people that like to play fast and loose with the scriptures and like to say, well, I have a right to believe whatever I want to believe and, and then wonder, walk around as though I have purpose in life. And one of the problems we face as Christians is, and it's hard to do this, particularly if you're the kind of person that is, tends to be gentle and doesn't really relish a confrontation. But what, happened, what we have to do is make that non-Christian realize that it's dark out there. It's a delusion to think you've got an answer. Now, this sounds arrogant, but fundamentally, it's the gospel. There isn't any other answer. If the gospel isn't the answer, you sure don't have one. And I don't intend to apologize for the gospel. You should be ashamed of yourself for not to walk around in this life as an adult of 30, 40, or 50, and you can't even solve an evil question. You have no answer whatsoever apart from this. And this is why verse 32 is so important. Paul says that that's the only thing you've got left. And if you've just read Walter Kaufman, you say, yeah, that's what Kaufman's saying. So there isn't any other option. So this is why on verse, on, 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 uh, on verse 32, uh, it's, a, it's actually pointing back to Ecclesiastes. Uh, and I cite, uh, we don't have time tonight or in this series, but I recommend sometime, if you, if you really are interested in this, Ecclesiastes was written about uh, 900 B.C., Nine, let's see, that would be five centuries before Aristotle and Plato. And you will find themes in Ecclesiastes that totally answer the question that Aristotle and Plato were trying to answer four centuries later. Solomon had already thought about it. If you want to see the impact of Solomon, the nearest person in history to Solomon, the kind of man he was, is probably Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci is one of these multi-geniuses that no matter what he did, I mean, he was an architect, a biologist, an artist, uh, whatever this guy did, fantastic, probably one of the greatest geniuses the world has ever seen. Well, Solomon was that kind of a person. And Ecclesiastes is his report. It's like Leonardo da Vinci saying, I've done all these things, and here are my findings. Ecclesiastes is the report of a multilatitudinal, comprehensive genius. And that's why Ecclesiastes, though never preached on in church, very rarely ever studied in a Bible study, is actually one of the greatest books for our, our generation. Because Ecclesiastes unmasks unbelief. It rips it right back to the foundations and says, here is what you got. Take a good look. Now what we want to do is say, okay, 
Well, what do we have by way of answer? So I've tried to outline, this isn't the only way of doing it, but this is how I've tried to organize this response to suffering from our perspective and biblical perspective. So we're going to look at four steps. And that's what makes this chapter a little long because I, I spent some time more in an application mode here. The first thing on page 65, going back to the basics. Now, the thing to remember about all suffering and evil, when it happens to you or it happens to a loved one, the, the thing that you want to remember, and it gets back to that, that first diagram I showed you. See, we, we have to operate within the biblical frame of reference. Remember this first thing I said, if we really believe the Bible, what does that diagram say? It says we were created for a non-evil universe, doesn't it? The universe wasn't evil when it was created. Man and woman were created to live in a world that was not evil. And the conclusion is then that when we suffer and when we get smashed with, a, with evil in a suffering situation, we must understand that we are in spiritual shock. It is a spiritual shock to our systems because we weren't created for this. There is something tremendously abnormal about suffering and evil. And that's what offends us. That is what upsets us. And the non-Christian can't really put his hand on it. But we can because as Christians, we believe we were designed for a universe that wasn't there with evil in it. That's why evil is so upsetting. That's why we get angry with suffering. Besides the fact we have a conscience, it's just that it's a shock. So if we start saying from the very beginning of our response that I'm in a shock, I'm, I'm shock, suffering from shock, and, re, and keep this in mind, then we'll understand a little bit how God works with us. Because he's got to deal with that shock. And you can walk around and not even be too aware of shock. Uh, Marsha's a nurse. Isn't it true, Marsha, that you, people can be in shock and not, not be out cold? Uh, you've seen around an automobile accident or something. And they're just not all there. It's, and it's, it's because their whole body's upset. Everything's upset. So, in response to the suffering, this is why I point out in the first step, back to basics. <clears throat> it's not the time for a great theological discourse when you're in shock. And this is why I believe God dealt with Job and God dealt with Paul the way he did. He came in almost confrontationally. And I think those who work in medicine with physical shock. We'll see some analogies here. That God did not come in and pat Job on the head and say, poor boy. Rather, God came in and almost started an argument with God, Job. Why did he do that? He did that to activate something. What is it he was trying to get started? He was trying to get started the fact that in shock, we tend to go passive. One of the things that happens in shock is passivity. You're just shocked. And your, your mind is like it goes in slow motion. And you're not responding fast. So what has to happen is 
We need to meet God for who He is. To get our spirits and our minds back going again. And this is why, as I mentioned in that paragraph of biblical counsel, uh, the second paragraph, this is why when you look at Job and when you look at Paul, when both of those men faced major crises in their lives, God seemed to deal with that shock of evil and suffering by this overpowering thing that says, you look at who I am. And you may not like me, but I'm here and you're there. So let's get back to basics. This is not a very loving approach, but it's an answer to shock. So, we move to the second point. All right. After we get back to the basics, and if you'll notice the last uh, sentence, uh, last two sentences in the paragraph back to basics, what, we're, what God is really doing, does he have a plan in his omniscience for you that your mind may not know much about? Is his sense of justice better or worse than yours? In other words, it's him versus you. You've got to get back to that. Forget everybody else. Forget the circumstances. Forget everything else. It's between you and him. And that's what he does with Job. You're dealing with me. He says to Job, never mind Elihu, never mind all these guys, never mind the psychiatrist. You're dealing with me. So get it straight, fella. In your situation, I am here. And there's nobody else that counts. And if you don't believe that, I'm going to make you believe that. And I'm going to give you 500 questions until you do believe that. Well, what has God done by acting this way? He's refocused. He's dealt with this thing. So the focus now becomes not the circumstance, not the person, not the cause, not whatever happened to it, but now we're focused up here. Now, that doesn't solve the problem. But what it does do, like a lightning rod, God attracts the anger. So the anger is now focused from circumstance to the Creator. Now the next one is an obvious one. Why did this happen to me, God? It's all right. That's movement. Because if you're asking, why did this happen to me, God, look what you've just confessed. Let's think about that. The very fact that you're asking the question is pretty good. Because in asking that question, you've confessed that you really do believe that God is sovereign in the situation. Otherwise, if you didn't, you wouldn't be angry at him. So you've got a basic thing going that's good. Yeah, you're hot. Yeah, you're mad. Yeah, you're hurt. But at least it's in terms of who God is. And you realize that it's between me and God, and we're going to argue this one out. We also have an issue of his holiness or his righteousness or his justice. And that's come into question here. His omniscience. These things may be dealt with, but at least we believe this and we also believe his omnipotence because he caused it. If you're saying, why did God happen to this? You're tacitly confessing that he planned it, he chose it, and he let it happen or he did it. So at least we've moved to step two now. Now the issue in step two is, well, if he's in control of it, why is he distributing the evil this way? Why is the shape, the particular situation I am facing, the way it is? What's the deal with this kind of suffering? Not suffering in the abstract, 
You know, I, I'm beyond that. I understand. And it's, suffering is evil is not some abstract thing that's out of control. It's very focused. Now the problem is, why is it looking like this? Why this? Why this time? Why did it happen to me like so? And we usually say, if you'll notice in par that paragraph, it comes off, how can a loving God, this is the extreme version, you've heard this in unbelief, how can a loving God send people to hell or have evil like this go on? But that question can be reversed. Watch what happens if you reverse the question. Ask this one. How can a just God send people to heaven and give a gracious respite from immediate judgment right now? Ooh. Don't ask that one. Why don't we ask that one? Because that second version of the question acknowledges that evil in general is due to the creature, not the creator. And somehow, we really merit a lot more suffering than we're getting. Ever ask the question why there's so little suffering? Think about that for a minute. Why did Adam and Eve be allowed to live for 900 years when God said, the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die? That death sentence was postponed for 900 years. Why? What's the deal? Why does God not punish? Well, let's turn to 2 Peter 3. Because the Bible gives us an answer to that. And I want to show you this passage because... This is the other side of the question when we say, oh, God, would you take this problem away? Would you get rid of all this evil? There's a reason why he doesn't. So this, the second question is, is the limits of evil or the, the shape of it? Why does he not end it all? In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Now watch this clause. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In a macrocosmic scale, why doesn't the second advent come? See, when we pray that the evil would be done away, you know what we're really praying for? The end of history. Because it's a fallen universe. And the only way the evil is going to be gotten away is the whole universe is going to have to go away. So that's a prayer for the end of history. Well, why doesn't God end history? Because he wants to be gracious and let more people into the kingdom. So here's something maybe you haven't thought about. The problem is that if God is a gracious God, and if He is a loving God, it's precisely because He's loving that the evil is still around. It's not, oh, how can a loving God allow this to go on? The, the question is, because He's loving, that's why it goes on. See, you got the question, you wrongly phrased it. So watch this. This is, a, a, this is a real satanic type thing because Satan gets a hold of this thing and he twists the question all around. The question is that it goes on because God is gracious and he wants men to come to know him. And if we literally had our prayers answered, men and women 
would go immediately to hell. All right, now what we want to do is look at some patterns of suffering. <clears throat> and I've isolated 11 patterns here along with some verses. And I'm going to try, in the time we have, to go through some of the key verses in these things just to sample them. <clears throat> and I hope you'll spend more time yourself as you go through these. You'll note I direct, I've, I've categorized them into two kinds. Direct suffering patterns begins on page 66, and on page 67, indirect suffering. <clears throat> the reason I do that is because of the parenthesis that I put under that title. Notice under direct suffering I say, the clear consequences of creature choices. In these cases, the suffering is a result of a choice and it's quite clear what the relationship is. Consequences. Choice and consequence. Choice and consequence. Choice and consequence. But the suffering is more subtle on page 67 because all those categories are not directly due to an immediate choice anybody made. That evil appears to just happen. And that's more shocking. So let's look now at the first six, which are patterns of suffering that we experience as creatures because of a choice. Obviously, the first one, general existence of sickness and death. Why? Because the law of Genesis 2.17. What did God say? In the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. Is it true or is it false? It's true. So, what did we do? We ate. So what happens? We die. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. So, the existence of sickness and death is because we knew in Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.17, before we had anything, and we knew it and deliberately disobeyed it. And you can go in, the references I give you there in Romans are just the commentary on it. The fall event vindicates God's word as reliable. If we didn't die, if we did not die after we ate, what would that show? It shows Satan was right. What did Satan say? You're not going to die. Go ahead and eat it. No problem. So, the fact that we have the presence of evil and suffering is a direct consequence of a historic moment. Okay, the second... A general existence of self-induced misery. This is intensified suffering, and it's the law of Galatians 6-7. So let's go to Galatians 6-7, because 95% of our suffering is usually due to this. Due to this. I can speak from personal experience. Galatians 6-7 ought to be memorized, because it's, it's a, such a powerful verse that shows creature choice, cause, effect, choice, consequences, choice, consequences, choice, consequences. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. And that's the problem, that even in addition to the suffering we get because we're in a fallen universe and because we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, on top of their induced suffering, we add our own. So if they spread five inches of it around, we add two or three more inches of the gook. Every time we do something stupid and rebellious, just, come on, let's add some more. We don't have enough around the world. We're going to add some more. So we create more misery just by bad and rebellious decisions to God. It's, the, it's actually, remember the first divine institution? Responsibility? Responsibility, responsible labor? And we said back there that the fruit of our labors are going to be judged. 
what do we produce? We don't stop producing. So when we do something stupid, we produce something. And it's abominable in God's sight. And it's suffering, and it just adds to the total equation. We see it in number three, Galatians 6, 7. Again, works out to the third and fourth divine institutions. That's the family. Uh, it should be the second and third, excuse me. No, third and fourth. Uh, we'll get into the fourth later. Let's uh, turn to Exodus 20. It's right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And a lot of suffering happens because of this, pr this principle. But it's all direct. It's all traceable to, to decisions. So you can pretty well tell suffering of these kinds because it's, you, know, you reflect upon, you know, yeah, well, I did do something dumb. And um, so I really can't blame anybody else. That was my choice. I screwed up. I sinned. And I developed all this stuff that's going on. All right, in Exodus 20, 5 through 6, what does God say? He says, I am the jealous God because I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of them who hate me. Of course, people stop there and never read verse 6. And verse 6, if you'll notice, but I show loving kindness to thousands of them who keep my commandments. And that's, by the way, one of the most eloquent verses in the Old Testament. You always hear this, oh God of the Old Testament, he's a meanie. No, no. Read the text. What does God say? He says, look, I am going to curse to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. What does he say in the next verse? I am going to bless to the thousands of them that love me. Isn't that a little asymmetrical? See, there's the heart of God in this verse. He doesn't get a big thrill out of judging. He's reluctant to do that. But he has established his creation and he's a God of order and that's the way it's going to be done. So, he, he disciplines the third. Now, is, what does that mean? Quickly, in summary, there's a pattern in Scripture and you'll see this. You'll see this with the first chosen family of Abraham. Remember? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Next year we get into that. And you read their stories and you'll see the same pattern of sin in that family. When it gets so bad, in the fourth generation, what does God do to the Jews? By the time you get to the fourth generation of that family, what does God put them? Sticks them down in Egypt. And it's not a pleasant place. Why does he do that? Because that family kept, didn't deal with the sin pattern that was being transmitted from father to son and father to son and father to son. It's very clear in the Genesis text what's going on because the sons commit the same sin their dad did. And it's always a little bit more. Families can transmit heritage. A family will always transmit heritage. And your family transmitted to you patterns of sinning. They also might have transmitted patterns of godliness. But the family will transmit something. And you got baggage. And this is why Divorced couples have a problem raising children sometimes because you think, well, wait a minute, where did that come from? Or adopted children may sometimes have a problem because you don't know, if they're especially adopted later in life, uh, and they've picked up bad habits in their family, because you haven't observed and been in the family, it's kind of hard to nip that stuff. But when you have kids of your own, what infuriates you the most about your children when they do the stuff that you do, Right? Because you recognize 
God got it. There I go. I see it. The stuff that I have to deal with, I see it. I see it in my sons. And I don't like it because I have to deal with it. And I, I say, why do we have to transmit it? It's coming in a new version over here, but I can still see it. It's Clough again. So, I was on the phone. That's why I was late. I was on the phone with one of them that couldn't figure out how to use a credit card. All right. So, the point is that families transmit culture. And what God says, I'll let that go on only so long, and then I'm going to take that family out. Pretty sobering, isn't it? God will cut off a family. And you know in the New Testament, one of the great families, he did that, and he did it right across the pages of the New Testament. It was a pagan family. It's called the Herods. Herod the Great was a, was a genocidist. He killed babies because of his hatred for the Jewish Messiah. And you trace Herod's family to his son and to his grandson, and every one of those Herods got theirs in the page of the New Testament. And finally, you read in the book of Acts, the third generation, fourth generation of Herod's family, the guy dies of worms because he tried to pull the same stunt his grandfather did. That family was a damned family because they didn't get out of their sin pattern, and they were just terminated. God says, that's it. I'm not going to allow this pattern to go on anymore. I'm going to bust up that family. So, that's a case of how suffering happens. Suffering happens with nations. And Acts 17 is a good example of the theory of how that happens. A great perspective on history that God sets the boundaries of nations to maintain God consciousness. And when a country doesn't maintain God consciousness, out. Get out of here. And they suffer. This is why there's so much poverty in the third world. A lot of the areas where there's poverty on the face of the planet is not because of some innocence. Tragically, a lot of the children and families die because they're suffering. I had a friend when I lived in Texas. We, we raised money to buy a pump from Texas that would, was a tremendous uh, volume pump of water. And at the time, they were having one of these famines in Africa. So every, all the Christians got together and we all raised the money and we got this, this pump that was, it was a slick deal because we could, on the high plains of Texas, you really need a lot of pumps to keep your farm going because the water is way down in the Ogallala Formation. You've got to keep pumping this water back up and it's all dry, so you've got to pump thousands of gallons to keep a crop going. So these pumps are really nice and they were pretty flexible to use. Sent it all the way over to this country, I won't mention the name, in uh, East Africa. Got it there, paid for the shipping, comes on the dock and the bureaucrats in this third world country come down and say, oh, you can't import that because unless you pay us tariffs. The missionary said, no, wait a minute, hold it here. Your people are, are dying of thirst out here. They don't have enough food. I'm bringing a pump in to solve your problem and you want me to pay tariff on it? No, we don't do that. So I was proud of the missionary. He packed the pump up and sent it back to Texas. I'm not going to put up with that stuff. These people that run some of these third world countries can't chew gum and walk at the same time. And that's why they have poverty. So it's not because of some, some stupid thing. It's usually because of bad management and foolish policies. That's what causes poverty. Then we have the fourth one. It's obvious in the scripture. Eternal lake of fire. It's obviously due to choice, isn't it? Jesus says it is. You reject grace. I offer you salvation in my son, and you spit in his face. So, hey, what do you want me to do? I'm not going to keep you around forever. I'm going to have a little garbage heap off here for eternity. I'm going to scrape you all off there, get you out of the way, 
So history can go on without you. So that's the fourth kind of suffering. And then five and six is judgment for believers. Obviously, the fourth one is a suffering pattern that applies only to unbelievers. And in number five and number six, we have judgment in the mortal life of believers. That's Hebrews. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, classic instance of it. Maybe you don't hear too much about this because you often say, well, gee, the sign of salvation is that um, you have a person who, who is blessed, who has peace, purpose, and stuff. And yet, look at over here in, cha- in chapter 12 of Hebrews. One of the signs of salvation is that when we rebel against God, we get sharply disciplined. And if you look at... Um, Verse 7 and 8. It is for discipline you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And one of the signs is that you can't get away with it because our Father loves us and He's going to go after us and straighten us out. We all need straightening out. So, is that related to choices? You bet. We make bad choices, Daddy comes along, takes care of the problem. 1 Corinthians 11 is the, what Bill and, and Mike read in the communion service. They have people coming in doing communion half stoned. And I think we've got a church problem. How'd you like guys to fall out in the aisle and the deacons serving the communion have to step over these guys because they're out cold? That's what's going on in Corinth. So God had to deal with that problem. Then we have judgment after the resurrection of believer in the denial of, of rewards. And that's, that's a sobering thought in 1 Corinthians 3, where things that we thought, oh, were such great and wonderful things we did for God. And he applies his blowtorch, and it turns out this stuff burns up. It doesn't endure. And I would say that that's a suffering situation. So there are lots of reasons for suffering in the Scriptures, and it's refreshing to look at the fact that there are these definite patterns And what does this looking at patterns do? It goes back to the fact that it tells us something about our God. That the suffering, when we're in shock, we deal with God as God, we get angry at Him, we look at the fact that He has a reason for these limits, and then we start looking, point three, and we start looking at all these patterns and we say, you know, He really kind of does know what He's doing here. There is an order amidst the apparent chaos of sorrow and suffering. We always can't glimpse it. There's no guarantee we can glimpse it. Job didn't glimpse all of, his, all of the neat things that were going on. Oftentimes, though, and I'm sure everybody here can give testimony to the fact, that you go through these periods of suffering and you can't see rhyme and reason to it until later. And then, by golly, there was a reason for that. So you acquire meaning. And presumably in eternity we'll have a complete examination of that's what was going on back then when you were fussing at me. All right, let's look now at the, the more subtle kinds of suffering. Now, I'm going to take you to a passage in the Old Testament that you'll never hear a preacher preach on. It's too embarrassing. So, I'll take care of that. 1 Samuel chapter 5. The 
when God wants to get our attention as an unbeliever, He'll do it. And probably there are many of you sitting here tonight who can testify the fact that you were fat, dumb, and happy walking around as an unbeliever, and all of a sudden somebody intervened. Something happened. Now, was that due to your immediate choice? Were you really looking for God? Well, not really, no. Well, then all of a sudden, why this drop into your life? To get your attention. Wake up call for the gospel. Now, the Bible does have a sense of humor. And in 1 Samuel chapter 5 is one of, the, one of these passages. This is a passage of mockery. It is a passage directed against the paganism of the culture of the time. And it was about the Philistines. In verse 1, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the story goes on to point out that they had this ark and uh, the Philistines captured the thing and they thought, ha, I, we've got this. So they go ahead and they put it uh, into the temple of Dagon. So if you'll turn to, let's see what verse that is. Verse 3 they set it in the, in the temple, and when the Ashdods arose early in the morning, below, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of God. So here's their little statue God, and he fell over right in front of the Ark of God. So they took Dagon, they put him back up again. The next day, they arose early the next morning. Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of God, and the head of Dagon and both arms of his hands were cut off. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. One of the angels had a party in that place on the night before. Now, what's the deal? Dagon was the god. These are the Philistines. That's their sacred god, the integration point of their society. And he's fallen on his face. Now, here's where God gives him a little suffering. Now, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdites. He ravished them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and his, and his territories. And those of you who are after King James, you'll see it's basically hemorrhoids. It's hemorrhoids here. And I, you just have to have a little sense of humor to tell what this is all about. You've heard of a pain in the you-know-what, and this is a biblical passage that shows you where that idea came from. <laughs> now, this is suffering as a wake-up call. God was not going to allow these people to go on the way they were going on, and so he interfered in their life. Was it due to their choices? Well, not really. Not, they remembered it for quite some time. And the Jews would read 1 Samuel 5 and laugh, like, like we're laughing, because it's a mockery of their God. It's not just a funny story. It's, there's a profound mockery going on. The true God of the Bible versus the gods of the world. The gods of the world need to be propped up. They fall over. All right, then let's turn, and the next one is number eight, a nudge to advance spiritually. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter eight. We probably won't get beyond this, this point, this particular point of suffering, but um, there's so much material in here, and I risk probably going into too much detail because this really is kind of a survey course. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, there's another example in the Old Testament of suffering of believers for training. And there's a particular verse here and a particular wording that I think is interesting for us to look at. 
If you look at chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, verse 2, you shall remember the, all the way which the Lord your God led you in the wilderness for 40 years, that he might, now watch this, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments. Now watch the wording of verse 3. The wording of verse 3 is, is very, very particular. So, so pay attention to the, the verbs of this. And he humbled you and let you be hungry, fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to understand that man does not live by bread alone. Now just stop right there and think about that sentence. Let's look at that sentence a minute. Here we are, down through history, and here are the Jews, for 40 years they're out there. A whole heritage. This goes on for 40 years. Now, during their experience, this generation, this generation, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, none of them had ever empirically observed manna. In fact, the word manna is the Hebrew word for, what is this? What is it? You ever hear of a food called, what is it? That's what manna is. We don't understand this. Nobody's ever seen this before. Where did this stuff come from? Never empirically observed. Now, this is what's so important about that verse 3. What God does, he, he gets us into circumstances such that there is no way out by our resources. See, he got them in a situation they had no food. I mean, you, these are a million people out here. People forget, like in Desert Storm, when we had all those troops out there, you should have seen the logistics operation going on. And it's not necessarily battlefield skills that win wars. It's the logistics. The side that can't supply their troops loses. And logistics is a tremendous and fundamental effort in all situations. And the logistics of taking two million people out in the middle of the desert just think of the water problem. Multiply the gallons of water a person needs a day by one million. And think about the logistics a minute. Think about the clothing. For 40 years, how many pairs of shoes are we got a million people or two million people going to use in 40 years of walking around in that desert? And I clue you, that desert is not smooth to walk on. A lot of hard rocks out there. What about all the clothes? They didn't have Kmart in the Sinai. What did, where did they get all this stuff? Look at what it's saying. It's saying the clothing didn't wear out. You had food that you never saw before. So there's a principle in this where our suffering will be to put us in a box. We'll say, I'm in a box. I can't get out. That's right. And think of this. Try to think back here to these people. No food, no water, a clothing problem. And then all of a sudden, God drops in manna. And you'll see, this is why he says in verse 3, he says, you didn't know this, your fathers didn't know it, but I made you to know it. That you may understand that you don't live by bread alone, by normal processes. You live by trusting me. So, here's a case where suffering is a nudge to spiritually advance. And we don't like that. We get comfortable where we are. And then God says, okay, I'm going to ratchet things up a little bit. Yee, you don't like that. But it's really for our, our benefit. You know, when a little kid, we didn't want to go to school the first time. 
And as, as Christians, we don't like this. this. It gets us out of our comfort zones. All right, I want to take one other passage tonight, and if you turn over to 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul had a similar situation develop. It's an extended passage, and we won't get into the details of it, but um, if you look at um, verse 1 of, of chapter 12, boasting is necessary, uh, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations. In other words, Paul's sharing his testimony of his tremendous experiences with these theophanies where the Lord appeared to him in a personal way. And he, he goes on to describe this uh, tremendous thing. And the other apostles didn't really share this. They knew Jesus in his humanity. But Paul had these tremendous experiences of Christ as a, in a theomorphic form after the resurrection. Now, verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So here he was in a suffering situation. He made prayer. He said, Lord, take this suffering out of my life. And it's interesting, the answer. Verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Now, what is going on there? Well, it's very similar to what's happening in Deuteronomy. Paul has a tendency in his soul to be proudful. Know that from his earlier pre-Christian days. So he has this tendency to the flesh in a particular flesh pattern of pride. And this guy was a genius. And he could get very proudful about it. And what this suffering does, it humbled him. And some scholars think it was because he never fully recovered from the Damascus Road when he was blinded. And he was partially blind. Some of the evidences for that is Galatians. He says, I write these with big letters so you can see. And, you know, it may be true that, that the Lord appeared to him and it made him his study difficult. I mean, think of it. Here's a guy that's well read. So where does God hit him? With his eyes. Maybe he couldn't see the half the people he was preaching to. But whatever, Paul got in a situation here with his suffering. He asked the Lord, and that was fine. He went to the Lord to see what was going on about all this, and he got an answer. And the answer was that you better go along with this because it's best for you. Now, we could argue with that one. I don't agree with that. But who knows us? Who is the one who looks on the outward appearance? And who is the one who works, looks in the heart? So, this is a case, again, a nudge to spiritually advance. You might say this is a nudge to keep from spiritually falling back. Because if the Lord hadn't done this, Paul might have kind of gotten backwards here. So, it's a preventive suffering. This is kind of a suffering that comes into our lives to prevent future problems. And we could go on, and I encourage you to look at some of those verses. Plenty of other verses in the Bible that deal, obviously, with suffering. Um, I started this class five minutes late, and I apologize, but let me just finish these the 9, 10, 11 a minute. 9, 10, and 11 are sufferings, all of which are evidences for something outside of ourselves. 8 is suffering that's directly related to, to us and our spiritual growth. But we also have to remember 
There are other things going on in history besides us. And suffering number nine is evidence for evangelization. And, and Peter's a great one. That first Peter 2 passage goes all the way to chapter 3. Peter says, your suffering shows the reality of the gospel. When unbelievers look at you and they see that you respond to this situation in a radically different way than they would respond to the same situation, they begin to ask questions. In fact, that's the context that leads up to that passage, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready to give an answer to every man that asks a reason of the hope that is in you. Why do they ask a reason? Because they watch a suffering situation. They watch how we deal with it. Number ten is the same thing, but it's, it's for the encouragement of other believers. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 1, there's a whole passage there where Paul says to the Corinthians, um, by suffering and dealing with that in your life, that makes you a counselor in that area. We've seen that in this congregation, where the elders will frequently take someone who suffered in, in, in a certain situation and pair them off with someone else who is just starting into that situation. And what that does for the person who's just getting creamed to realize, gee, here's somebody that went through that five years ago. You know what? They're still breathing and they're still alive. That's encouraging. They can do it. Maybe I can do it too. So that's what that's about. And then the 11th one is the most mysterious of all and that's the kind that you see in Job and that's related to the angels that watch us. And for some reason, they learn from what we do. And some of the suffering is never, like that suffering of Job was never really explained to Job. We get the, we get the poop, but Job never read chapter 1 or chapter 2. See? He didn't know what was going on in heaven, or at least when he first went into this. So, there's evidences apparently that go on that our lives are being used to teach personalities in the unseen realm. Kind of spooky. But... We point these out because there are reasons for suffering and some of those reasons we know, some of them don't. And the encouragement is that when you think about it, there's 11 different areas here, at least maybe you could go in and find 12 or 13, I don't know. But at least there are 11 different categories that explain why this is happening in my life. And finally we conclude on number four, that's the fourth step, and that's where we get down to the fact that after it's all said and done, we've met God, we've argued with Him about the limits of suffering in our life, we've observed some of the patterns to be encouraged by that, and we start to think, well, gee, maybe there's a reason and a purpose. Our goal at the end of coping with suffering, and sometimes we have to keep coming back to this point, is where we can get in a position of worshiping and giving thanks without bitterness in our heart toward God for this situation. And that doesn't come automatically. Don't think that's easy to do. Sometimes it will take weeks, days, years on a certain point where, and, but you'll know when you get there because then you're able to give thanks and the bitterness goes away. But otherwise it hangs in there and hangs in there and hangs in there. And I just mentioned, which I mentioned last week, and that's paragraph, the next to last one, the model of the Lord Jesus Christ, how when He faced His maximum suffering, it's interesting to observe how he did it. In his humanity, he always re retained his mental alertness. He wouldn't let himself go to sleep or, or allow drugs or anything else until he could deal with that problem. 
And then he, then he did. And then he slept and then he would take the, the medicine that was offered on the cross and so on. But he remained alert. And that gets back to my first point, what I started the whole thing tonight, and that is that suffering starts off with shock. And that one of the characteristics of shock is that you're just not functioning rapidly. In a shock, you withdraw, things slow down, and you just aren't thinking clearly. And it's the same thing spiritually. We don't think clearly. And you've got to work through that to the fact that that ultimate point where you can say, thank you, I don't know what all you have in mind for me, but I can rest in peace that something is happening here. And I trust you that you know what you're doing with my life. That's the, that's the coping strategy. And the, the, the conclusion of this is that you'll see, if you think about what we said tonight, that all of this is the exact opposite of the pagan coping strategy. What was the pagan coping strategy? To make up a purpose. Or to go into some sort of an anesthesia, ecstasy of some sort, drugs of some sort, alcohol of some sort. What do all those have in common? They all divert your attention from the suffering, don't they? That's why people are like this. Let's just say no to drugs. It's hard to just say no to drugs or alcohol. If that was what gives you relief from the pain of life, it's understandable why, with that coping pattern, you'd do that. But the biblical coping pattern is exactly the reverse, where you stare the suffering in right in its gory face and deal with it. You, you don't turn away from the suffering. You look at the suffering, and then you look at him. And it's a, it's a process not of anesthesia, it's a process of profound alertness. All right, the, the, this is Anne's chapter 4 and the event of the fall. We move on now to the event of the flood. And we're going to be looking at the whole issue of salvation. And that section we passed out um, starts us off with that. Father, thank you for our time tonight. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul, who wrote the text of Scripture, is also our teacher. And we look to him both in the times of blessing and in the times of suffering in our lives to direct our hearts towards you where we can look you, look at you and give thanks for saving us and for having a plan for our life even though you do not always reveal the details of the plan because your character so impresses us that we can take our lives in our hands and hand them over to you. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen.